When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to All Rings Considered, Entertainment Weekly's podcast breaking down the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. This week, we are all over the map, stretching from the depths of Casa Doom to the far reaches of the Southlands, back to the island kingdom of Numenor. We are joined by two very regal figures from the show. We have Sophia Novete, who stars as the Dwarven Princess Disa, and we also have Cynthia Adai Robinson, who rules over Numenor as the Queen Regent Muriel. We're going to get to those interviews in a bit, but first, we're going to break down the Rings of Power, Episode 4, The Great Wave. I'm senior writer Devin Kogan, and I am joined on this not-so-unexpected journey by my co-host Christian Holub. Christian, how's it going? Hey, Devin. Good to be back. We are going to take a trip all over the map this episode. We go to a lot of different places, um, but I think we're going to start same as we did last week with let's start with Numenor, because the name of this episode is The Great Wave. Oh, what could that be referencing? <laughs> right? And uh, th- there's a lot of waves on this on this episode. There sure are. You know, we, we see basically Muriel's visions and later shared by Galadriel of this giant wave crashing and on onto Numenor and, and basically sinking it into the sea. Uh, Christian, what did you make of, of all of these, you know, kind of mysterious visions and the introduction of a of kind of familiar seeing stone? Well, Devin, I took it as a great relief, first of all. This is something that I think you and I have both struggled with when it comes to covering the show, when it comes to explaining to people what the second age is, when it comes to telling people why Numenor is cool. If there is anyone out there who is watching this show, doesn't have much Tolkien knowledge, I mean, I'm really glad that they did this because I just don't think that there's a way to tell the story of Numenor and pretend like its fate is a secret that you can keep. Because for one thing, obviously it's not around in Lord of the Rings. So it's, it's, it's kind of the fun, dark things about prequels. Our distinguished competition in uh, House of the Dragon does some similar stuff where it's like, okay, you can introduce new characters and settings in a prequel. That's great. And then raises the question, well, where are they in the original? And so... I know, right? Numenor seems pretty cool. Would it be cool if Frodo had to go there? <laughs> right. Yeah, if only, right? And, um, and so I like that even still, even as I'm talking to you on this podcast, I still feel nervous. But we can say, it, like, Numenor will be sunk by a giant wave, which is what Muriel is seeing. And the, and the episode kind of ends by showing that that dream is true, by giving, like, multiple things that are true in it. And I think that's a really smart decision, storytelling decision by the Rings of Power team, because anyone who knows the story, who knows Lord of the Rings, Middle Earth, Legendarium stuff, lore already, knows that Numenor will be sunk. And anyone who doesn't, it doesn't take that much to find out. <laughs> like if you were to Google Numenor and you'll see, you know, I'm sure, well, maybe now it'll be a lot of stills from the show, but 
Uh, you'll also see these, of course, amazing Alan Lee illustrations of the sinking of Numenor. And so I'm glad that they're upfront about that. And it's one of many things in the, this show in general. And I actually really liked the writing and the structure of this episode. It was the first time that I felt like things that were happening in different places were really playing off of each other. I mean, I guess there was a little bit of that in the last episode, as we talked about last week, we were seeing how different cultures in Middle Earth responded to death. And in this culture, we, uh, in this episode, I mean, we're seeing how different cultures handle kind of prophecy and continuation and vision and, and what knowledge um, should only the leader have the burden of knowing and what should everybody know. So yeah, I'm glad we can say that because there's a lot, obviously it's not going to be, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen this season and things are going to be different than we remember them. You know, there's, there's characters on Numenor that we haven't heard of before. There's all these things going on in the show that's going to differentiate the story. But I think when you're telling the story of Numenor, it's important to know that not everybody's going to make it out of this in a great way. And so I guess I'll throw it back to you, but you did ask me about the Palantir also. And so I want to say that I love the animation and the, the SFX of the Palantir. It's obviously something that this show is really nailing and the advantage of how much money was invested into it is that they can really do cool effects stuff and they, they have the resources for that. And we saw that with, um, you know, like the sea monster attack in, in episode two was really my first kind of, uh, wow, this really looks cool uh, with this show. And uh, another one came this week with the with the Palantir effect, which I loved because the Palantir in the Peter Jackson movies, all you get is just the, the blazing eye, which doesn't right. exist yet. So this ha- it has to be different than that because the eye's not there yet. And I love the like the, the ice and the and the and you going into it, going into the vision, kind of like the pensive from Harry Potter. I thought that was kind of a, an interesting model for what experiencing the Palantir. Uh, would look like. And then, of course, speaking of echoes and parallels, uh, you loved so much Galadriel's line to Elrond in the early episodes. You know, I've seen things, you haven't seen what I've seen. She kind of ends up on the other foot of that this episode where Muriel's showing her the Palantir and Galadriel's like, yeah, I've seen a Palantir before. And Muriel's not, not this one. (laughs) Um, So I thought that that was a fun reversal. But on the other hand, you know, if anybody else in the run of this show puts Galadriel on a boat and is like, she's going to stay there and she's going to go where the boat's going. Uh, I got some bad news for them. (laughs) She is getting off that boat. No, no boats. Galadriel just hates boats. That's, that's the new thing. Maybe if she wants to on her own terms, but anybody who's like, well, that takes care of that. We put Galadriel on the boat and now she's gone. Sorry. Sorry, pals. It's not, it's not going that way. Just kidding. I'm back. <laughs> Thought you got rid of me. Just you cannot get rid of me. Um, no, yeah, I, I loved that whole sequence. And I totally agree with you. I thought I thought the show was really smart to sort of lay out kind of what's at stake here for Numenor. I think yeah. that is one of the tricky things about telling a prequel story is a lot of times, you know, where, you know, the basics, you know, how these things right. are going to end. Um, I mean, you know, kind of arguably the most famous prequels of, of our time are the star Wars prequels. And it's like, wow, look at this cute little kid, Anakin. We all kind of know how his story ends up and then where, what he ends up becoming Darth Vader. The most famous prequels ever. I mean, I, I just have to note that it literally invented the word prequel. Exactly. Did not exist exactly. before the Phantom Menace. So, um, and now everything is a prequel all the time. Yeah, sequel is a dirty Phantom word. Menace. Nobody wants a sequel. Everything has to be a prequel. Yeah. But I think, yeah, the, I think the, the, the writers have been really smart about sort of setting up what's at stake for Numenor and basically being like, okay, you think you know how this story ends. 
but but what's interesting is the journey to get there. And, and then there's all this tension and, and all this kind of like exploration about like, you know, the the politics of Numenor. I think when we met Numenor for the first time, it was a little jarring. It was a little bit like, man, these people are being real mean to Galadriel. And like, I don't know if this is a cool place where I want to hang out. But here you get to see a little bit more of the tension and kind of the weight of ruling that Muriel is dealing with. You know, she, she's got, you know, she refers to her father. You know, there's there's this kind of tension between, you know, one, obviously the tension between the Numenorians and the elves, but then also this tension of basically like legacy and history and how do you, you know, guide your kingdom into the future while paying honor to its past and sort of like not ignoring all the, you know, fractious dissent that that your city and your your country is dealing with. So I just, I, I really like Cynthia Adai Robinson's performance in this. I think it's one thing to see her when she's, you know, decked out in her full, you know, regal glory and like kind of, you know, greeting Galadriel for the first time in the in the throne room. And then it's another thing to see her, you know, kind of haunted by these dreams of of the place that she loves and, and wants to do right by. And you get a sense that, you know, she really does want to do right by this place. You know, her her loyalty is not to anyone but to Numenor. She she loves her country. She loves her home. And I I, I don't know. I just really liked her performance here. Right. And I mean, you know, again, thinking of the way that the Palantir are, are used in Lord of the Rings, um, I think there's something very heroic and inevitably something very tragic about her seeing this apocalyptic vision in the Palantir and being like, I must do whatever is necessary to stop this from happening or to, or to save us or to avert it. Because that's the exact opposite approach that Denethor and Saruman take when they look in, this, in the Palantir. And they think that they're seeing the inevitable future, but they're really just seeing what Sauron's showing them. And they take that for granted and are kind of like, you know, Denethor is very much like someone who um, you know, is like doom scrolling Twitter or whatever these days <laughs> and is like, well, if it's all screwed anyway, what's the point? Why bother? Why, why put up a fight at all? And uh, obviously Muriel is not taking that approach. Uh, we'll see how it works out for her. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, this is an episode where Muriel and Galadriel really finally kind of come to understand each other and, and do this great team up that in turn then inspires all the men of Numenor. <laughs> like, oh, well, we can't be outshone by the by these women then, so we'll all volunteer to be heroes. And they connect on this level of, of you know, as Galadriel says, being the one who sees the danger that other people don't want to see. And that and we saw that with Galadriel and the elves. Um, although I don't know if residents of Middle-earth would necessarily phrase it this way, but, you know, there's a little bit of sexism that these characters are experiencing. They're kind of dismissed by the powerful men around them who are, yeah, 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 I know, it's all good. And so those are the things that I think they recognize as connecting them. And then the thing that they haven't even talked about at all, another connection that they have is this idea of, of legacy and carrying on for the people who can't anymore, Muriel's bedridden father and Galadriel's dead brother, in respectively, who they believe have kind of charged them with doing what they couldn't do or making up for their failures. And and that's the thing that they haven't talked about yet, but like is another thing connecting them. Absolutely. And there's, you know, I, I really love that, that kind of speech that Galadriel gives here where she, she says, you know, there is a tempest in me. Um, and it's, it, it's reminding me a lot of Kate Blanchett, you know, in place of a dark Lord, you would have a queen, <laughs> not dark, but terrible and, and but beautiful and terrible as the dawn. I knew you were going to finish it. Of course you, you got to. And yeah, it's been interesting. You know, there's been so much talk about Galadriel's 
portrayal in the show. And, and a lot of people saying, well, this is not the Galadriel that I know from the Peter Jackson movies, who's all like ethereal and, you know, doesn't fight with swords and is very, but, but I'm like, there's always been a, a danger and a, and a sort of edge to, to Galadriel. And, and we see that in, in the Peter Jackson films. We see that in the books. Um, you know, one of my absolute favorite lines from the books um, from the Lord of the Rings is where Sam is describing Galadriel to Faramir. And he says, uh, perhaps you could call her perilous because she's so strong in herself. Uh, you could dash yourself to pieces on her like a ship on a rock or, or drown yourself like a hobbit in a river, but neither rock nor river would be to blame. And so there's always been this idea that she's a little scary. She's kind of a force of nature. And even that's something that that Frodo and, and Sam pick up very quickly. So I, I, I really like, I think Morwith Clark is doing a phenomenal job. And it was interesting when I talked to the cast, they said, you know, when the original audition casting breakdown came out, um, apparently they were looking for people who had experience with Shakespeare and like had, you know, sure. whether, whether that was acting or studying or whatever. And you, you get a little bit of that Shakespearean vibe here with some of the some of the language and some of the performances and speeches. And how much you, Devin Kogan, enjoy it. I mean, look, I'm a Lord of the Rings nerd. I'm a Shakespeare nerd. I went to several years of Shakespeare summer camp as a child. Like, I'm, I'm your girl. <laughs> I think I forgot that. Yep, that is, that is a fun fact in the development of who I am and the kind of person that I have become. <laughs> Just the big fat nerd. Um, but yeah, what can I say? I love Shakespeare. I love Tolkien. I love, and this is a total tangent, but one of my favorite things about Tolkien is how he basically read Shakespeare and it was like, eh, I can do it better. I can do it better. Yeah. In Macbeth, when it's like, uh, no man born of woman can defeat Macbeth, Macduff was like, psych, I was born by C-section, so right. actually I can't beat him. And yeah. then when it's like, when Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane and then it turns out that's the soldiers carrying trees. And I love that Tolkien was like, but what if they were actual trees? No, that's literally like, I think it's literally like little Tolkien is reading Macbeth and it's like, oh my God, there's going to be a tree army. <laughs> And then he gets to the end and it's just guys with leaves on them and he like throws a book across the room. He's like, screw that. I'm going to grow up and write my own fantasy story where there's an yeah. evil wizard and right. this army of giant talking trees marches on him and tears down his tower. And it's going to be awesome. You couldn't just post his Macbeth but good on, on AO3 back then. So he really had to grow up and learn everything there was to know about English literature. The Lord of the Rings is kind of just Macbeth fan fiction. Let's be real. Right, and a and a uh, use of all the languages he made up. Exactly. Anyway, that's a great tangent. Right, that, I love that tangent, and I want to say it's, it's kind of interesting because, of course, the, the language that the characters are speaking in this show is not Tolkien's language. Because you know, it's 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 interesting. It's kind of homaging his style and and his ways of writing and his ways of describing the world. But you know, there's not a novel full of dialogue. I've actually been rereading, you know, some Lord of the Rings stuff kind of casually, you know, because I kind of want to approach this show in and of itself, but just, and I'm kind of stunned as always at like just how much of the dialogue in those Peter Jackson movies is just taken straight out of the books, just like the early seasons of Game of Thrones. And that's my old hobby horse is people really started complaining about the writing in Game of Thrones uh, when it stopped having George R. R. Martin books <laughs> to just take its dialogue from. And then people are like, why is the writing so bad? <laughs> it's, Again, that's a tangent, but I did just want to say, because I've been flipping back through Two Towers, you say you said that thing about Sam, and something I'd forgotten, you know, I'm reading, you know, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli encountering the writers of Rohan for the first time, and a lot of the dialogue is exactly the same, except the thing that first makes Gimli pissed at Aemir is... Aemer like kind of dings Galadriel 
and Gimli's like, oh, no, you didn't. You like, <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about, man. And so it, it, it is kind of interesting how she, even more than in the movies where it, it's really only kind of Frodo that carries this memory of Galadriel uh, throughout the movies and only in the extended edition can you get the, the stuff from Gimli about her hair, that she really did, you know not ensorcel, but, but kind of bewitch or, or enchant the men of the fellowship in an interesting way. And speaking of things that are left out of the movies, you know, when, when I reread fellowship, I was really struck by how much constant, re- and this is relevant to the show because of course the show is called the rings of power. And I think one of the big differences between fellowship of the ring, Tolkien's book and the movie is that the movie barely makes any reference to the rings. Right. I think that they judged in the adaptation that it was just going to be too confusing and that they needed to just focus on the ring. And, and of course, it's so easy to have, you know, 2020 vision. And the, whereas before it seemed like an impossible task to translate that to the screen. But I think that's key to Galadriel because the Galadriel that we know from Lord of the Rings is a wielder of one of the rings. And the elven rings are about preserving and maintaining what's left. And so she she and Elrond have carved out these little realms. And even though, as you've said, as we've said, the world has kind of gone to post-apocalyptic crap all around them, their realms are as beautiful as ever because of the magic of their rings. And this is a Galadriel who doesn't have the ring yet, who isn't focused, you know, on preserving the good that's left. She's still out there trying to fight evil, trying to vanquish the evil, trying to stop the apocalypse from happening. And she will fail to, to a certain degree. And that's kind of going to be one of the stories of this show is how does this, and that's kind of what I'm interested in. You know, Galadriel, like I said in the first episode, she's always a character that I've ha- had a hard time wrapping my head around. This version, it's as true for the Morphin Clark version as it is for the Kate Blanchett version, but in a totally different way. And I am entranced just about seeing like how this Galadriel becomes that Galadriel. Yeah, it's it's again, this is set thousands of years before the the events of Lord of the Rings. So I do get a little frustrated with people being like, well, she's not the same as she was in the movies. Yeah, because she's about to go through a thousands of years of heartbreak and drama and a lot of crazy stuff. So yeah. That's kind of the way things work. But yeah, no, I I really loved a lot of these Numenor scenes. Um, We also get to check in with a couple other Numenorians. We get to learn more about Aarian, who is uh, Elendil's daughter. We we see her sort of taking her first steps into, you know, studying architecture. Big Ray vibes in this episode. I don't know if it's just in her face, but she was reminding me of like the Star Wars women, like Daisy Ridley or or Natalie Portman, to the fact that it took me a little while to recognize her, because, like, last episode, she just kind of showed up and was like, hi, I'm the ultimate horse girl. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And then the, she doesn't have a horse in this episode, so it took me a little, it took me a sec to be like, oh, okay, that's the Arya. But I also love that Isildur is also kind of a horse girl. Like, he he loves his horse. <laughs> like, he, he's, and, and that, to me, gives me major Aragorn vibes, because that's right. one of my favorite things about Aragorn, is he just, like, the entirety of Two Towers is just about how much he loves this horse, and just how much he wants to hang out with this horse all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and even Eowyn's like, wow, you're really a horse guy. Yeah. Like, everybody in Rohan's like, we're really into our horses, but, like, you're something else. <laughs> Right, and you have the, you know, that, like you say, everyone that Aragorn meets in Lord of the Rings is always like, ah, Isildur's heir. And so, like, <laughs> and and his his affinity with horses is kind of a, described as, like, a kingly thing, like his knowledge of plants and herbs and stuff. And so it makes sense that that's something that we see passed down in this way. And, um, you know, Isildur so far, you know, I actually don't know how old Maxime Baldry is, but however he's playing the character, he's very young and very untested and unproven. So that's another character that'll be interested 
to see how he develops over the course of the series because the Isildur we know from the prologue to Lord of the Rings and stuff is very much not untested. So that's all to say he's not actually giving me huge Aragorn vibes outside of like these isolated things like the horse and stuff. Cause that's kind of the interesting thing about Aragorn is that he's, since he's not the protagonist of Lord of the Rings, he doesn't have to come into himself. Like he kind of starts the story with all of those kingly powers and attributes already. And his arc is about coming out, so to speak and, and embracing it, especially and his leadership role publicly. Uh, but he already has all those skills and, and is older as we see kind of taking that step to volunteer clearly not uh, his dad's favorite thing that he's ever done um, is uh, is getting him there to, you know, he's going to have to learn all this. He's clearly got, you know, supernatural sailing skill and some of these, you know, inborn talents, but um, he's got a long way to go in a way that Aragorn didn't really. Yeah. When we meet Aragorn, he's already spent the last 80 years, you know, kind exactly. of wandering in the wilderness and learning yep. from Elrond and hanging out with, with Arwen and, and, you know, fighting alongside Eowyn's grandfather or whatever. Um, so, right. so it's, and this is a very young Isildur and, and, and he still has a long way to go. Um, you know, and speaking of Numenorians, uh, we get to see a little bit more from our buddy Farazon, who is oh, the yeah. advisor to the, to the queen, to the queen regent. And we really get to see how charming and charismatic he is, how he can sort of command a crowd in a way that is, you know, um, really interesting. We meet his son, Kemen, which is a great name. I, every time I read it, I always think it's Kermit. And so in my head, I still call him Kermit, <laughs> but his name is Kemen. <laughs> um, Not a fan of that guy. Don't like his face. He's, he, it's interesting, you know, and we, and we see him, you know, crossing paths with Iarian, and there's a little bit of a flirtation there. And um, I'm very curious to kind of see how this all shakes out. Right. And he's disdainful of his dad, but I think, and this is why it's great casting is just like, if you met that guy in high school, you'd just be like, Oh, I want to punch that guy in the face, but you can't cause his dad's so rich. Um, <laughs> you know, that's not a guy that has to worry about ending up in a street brawl in Numenor, you know, they'll all steer clear around him. Um, yeah. And I liked that, that we got to see both Farazon and Muriel give speeches and kind of, compare them to each other and Muriel wanting to defend, you know, as you said, defend Numenor and, and uh, save Numenor no matter what is kind of speaking to those grand ambitions and these ideals and invoking the Valar and speaking, you know, her speech, even though she's giving it in her courtroom is kind of played against kind of the open air of Numenor and the whole scale and breadth of it. Whereas Farazon, the speech he's giving is in the street mostly to men. It's angry and it's kind of inflaming the things they're already stressed about. It's in kind of this enclosed space. You maybe only know that it's happening or getting that vibe if you're right there. And it's about closing Numenor off rather than opening it up. You know, there's definitely a hint of demagoguery. I hope that they don't, you know, maybe try to overdo the parallels to real life. This is something that they've talked to you about in your reporting about Numenor, the, why they think that this story is so interesting because it's a story about a once noble kingdom kind of being riven by divides and politics and stuff. And that's something that I think that we'll see, but you know, I hope that, I hope it's not shaded to, you know, on the nosely or whatever. We've had some demagogues in real life. I don't know if you've heard about them uh, <laughs> around the world. So it's resonant. And then even, you know, kind of, Friend, free beer. <laughs> <I love laughs> right, that. As, uh, you know, for the, it reminds me of uh, 
funny enough, Boromir in the extended two tower. You get these men some ale. These men are thirsty. But the men Farazhan's talking to are not soldiers who have just defended a, an important fort against orcs. They're just angry racist guys. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, so it's interesting to think about. And uh, if I had Muriel's ear, I would, I would maybe advise her to uh, take some of the things that her advisor tells him, that tells her, with a grain of salt. But actually, before you know, before we finish up in, in Numenor and checking in with everybody, I thought that it was very interesting to see the beginnings of a potential uh, Farazhan-Halbrand alliance going on here, kind of maybe in contrast to the Muriel-Gladriel partnership. You know, Halbrand, as much as he came over, he's not exactly jumping out of his skin to be like, I want to redeem my bloodline. <laughs> like right. he's, he, we saw he's a violent, he can be a violent berserker. And in this, he's, you know, he was giving me a little shades of kind of conniving uh, backstabber too, uh, which we saw before when, you know, as the first thing Galadriel said to him, why would I trust somebody who fed everybody else to a sea monster so he could right. escape? And you see that, you know, he, by the end, you know, he tells Farazhan, you know, wouldn't it be just as valuable to know where she's going? And then by the end of the episode, he's out of his jail cell, you know, and he's walking around. So definitely getting some some sinister overtones from that, you know, as, as legitimately, you know, pleasant as the ending of the episode is for Numenor. The political situation there is not resolved by any means. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little a little bit about that ending, which is where, you know, Muriel tries to send Galadriel away and basically says, Good luck. I'm not I don't want to be part of this. And as she does, uh, the petals of the the white tree begin to fall. And if there is one thing we we know from Tolkien, we talked about this last week, is that when something's wrong with the trees, something is very wrong. That is that is a very big issue. It's also specifically in her vision of the way. Exactly. And so as soon as she sees those those petals start to to fall and to swirl, she's like, oh no, this I've clearly made a mistake. And so she brings Galadriel back and vows to um, align herself with her. So it's it's just, again, you know, keep your eyes out for trees. Anytime there's a tree, things are happening. That is symbolism. It's like if you're a high school English teacher and they're like, okay, anytime you see a tree, that, that symbolizes something. It's never just a tree. Right. But then there would be, I would go more specific, which is if a tree is, is healthy, then things in a Tolkien story, then things are good. And if a tree is decaying or dying, then things are very bad. And so that's how, you exactly. know, in the, in the first meeting, you know, in the second episode, the first meeting between Elrond and Durin, even though Durin's all, <laughs> the moment that you see the tree kind of, that Elrond gave him growing underground and so beautiful and obviously cared for, you're like, oh, okay, they're good. They're, you know, that the core of their friendship is strong. And when, uh, you see the tree of Numenor decaying, uh, that's very bad and shows that there is, you know, as, as well-intentioned a leader as Muriel seems to be, there's clearly some rot in Numenor already at this point in its history. Absolutely. And all right, so let's switch to, to Elrond and Doran. Let's let's go underground. We're, we're going to delve deep, not, not too greedily. Well, doesn't everybody think that when they start delving deep? <laughs> Right. Until you discover something you shouldn't have. Right. Um, but uh, at this point, um, the, we, we learn that the, the dwarves have discovered something um, in, the, in the mines. They have found Mithril. They haven't named it yet, I believe, right? Yes, but we all recognize yeah. it um, as a very shiny silver metal. 
which uh, plays a major part in sort of the history of the dwarves and, and the future of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Christian, what did you make of this whole whole sequence with um, everything in Casa Doom? Yeah, it swerved on me a little bit because when we had that uh, ending of, I believe, the second episode that was Durin's father showing him something glowing in a case because of all the Silmarillion references, which we get a bunch <laughs> more in this episode. Hell yeah. You know, my first guess had been that it was the Arkenstone, you know, the Silmaril, the, the probably a Silmaril that the dwarves have, and that is a major part of the Hobbit. But to instead learn that what they're talking about is Mithril was interesting. It took me a little by surprise. And the scene with Durin talking to Elrond about it was one of my favorites in this episode, particularly because of the way that it played against the Numenor stuff. Like I said, the, the way that these things are are paralleling each other. And this is one, you know, the Numenor one, there are also different takes on the prequel thing we were just talking about, which is what do you do with the fact that the audience already knows where the story's going? And with Numenor, what they've done is they've clued in one of the characters to where the story's going, which is one way to do it. And with the dwarves, they've taken the different track, which is we know where Mithril is going and where young Doran's vision, uh, you know, this thing he lays out for Elrond, you know, this stuff must be all through the mountain, we can go mine it, even this is more valuable than gold, it will protect us, literally, as some, that's something we know, Mithril is really good armor and, and protection, and he thinks, as I suppose anyone would think, you know, the first people who mined oil or whatever and knew what it was, like, oh, this is better than gold, and that will necessarily mean prosperity, but you know, what we know as readers is that that little nugget of Mithril is just as much a portent of doom and apocalypse for the dwarves as the vision of the wave is for Numenor. He just doesn't understand it to be that, but we do, because we know that once you start digging for Mithril, they're not going to stop. And that's, that's kind of what I was joking about, is that like, they will eventually dive too deep and they will keep going for it. And for a while it will make their kingdom very prosperous, but that insatiable need for more and more will eventually unleash a Balrog who has the nickname Durin's Bane, which, you know, is not going to be a, a happy ending for our adorable little door family here, I think. And so I, lo I loved that. And the other thing I loved is that there are multiple lines of dialogue from different characters in this episode about Erendil the Mariner. Yeah! I don't know if they ever actually say his name, but it's a, one of those if-you-know-you-know -you -know things. I think he does. I think Elrond says my dad, or, or I could be wrong, but... Yeah, yeah. He, he might say it. I, I think Celebrimbor is very like your dad, yeah. and so it's like, well, I know what that is. Um, I think we may have brought this up on a different episode, although it's been a while since we've seen Elrond and Durin because they weren't around last week. And as a side note, I, I'm coming to understand that structure of the show. I don't know if there are any more realms or characters that we still need to meet, at least in this season. I think we've kind of met them all. I think we've met most of the major players, you know, between Numenor, Linden, the Harfoots, Khazadum, and what's happening in the Southlands. Yeah. Whereas, the, you know, in the first episode, it's like, where's Numenor and, and all that. You know, clearly the first episode to introduce us to one of the realms has to spend a lot of time on that, which is, you know, the first episode was just Linden Elves, Harfoots, 
at Southlands. And then in the second episode, okay, you've introduced those people, so now we can bring the dwarves in. Third episode, okay, now we can bring Numenor in. We have we need so much time to set up Numenor that we don't have time to go back to check in on Elrond in that episode. But now, okay, we can balance both those things. So all that. And I liked that, you know, I was just saying that there's this parallel between the Numenor story and the Khazad-Dum story in this episode about prophecies of doom that are interpreted differently by the characters in question. Uh, but there's also this parallel about father relationships, which I think is really powerful. That's something I wanted to talk about is because, um, you know, the name of the last episode was, is Adar, who we will get to in a little bit. Yes. But, but it basically means father. And mm. um, we we see a lot of that. We see Muriel's relationship with her her own father, who is bedridden and, and you know, um, is not present. We see Sildur and Yarion um, dealing with uh, Elendil and sort of his hopes for them and their own dreams. Uh, we see Kemen interacting with his father, Farazhan. And here we see we see Doran, um, you know, kind of grappling with his own dad and, and Elrond, you know, talking about how much his own father's legacy affected him. I do kind of love that moment where Durin is complaining a little bit about his dad and Elrond is a little like, well, my dad turned into a star. My dad is a star, so you can go talk to your dad. He's like 10 feet away. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of that Avatar The Last Airbender meme, you know, where he's like, my yeah. girlfriend turned into the moon. That sucks, That's rough, man. Buddy. That's rough, buddy. <laughs> That's that gave me major Avatar vibes here, which which I kind of love. Like my dad turned into a star. No, Durin and Durin and Elrond are a great uh, Zuko and Sokka for sure. I kind of love it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and I like that. So I don't know if I've said it before. Maybe it's come up on this podcast. But Arendelle is very funny in that he's kind of the secret hero of the Legendarium and is the yeah. inspiration for all of it. Is Tolkien finding his name? in kind of this ancient inscription and kind of wondering to himself, uh, this name is striking me. It's so beautiful and mythological. And what world is it from? And kind of the whole mythology of Lord of the Rings is constructed around this initial idea of Arendelle, the mariner who sailed to the gods and, and is in the sky. And funny enough, Tolkien cared about it so much that he kept putting off writing out the story and then, died and he never did. So it's, it, it's like a, like Arendelle's whole thing in the Silmarillion, which is the whole thing that the Silmarillion is leading up to is like two pages of Christopher Tolkien being like, well, this is what happens, but we, but we don't have Tolkien really writing it out because he was so perfectionist about it. And so Arendelle exists in the stories as we have them as this star, as the thing that gives light and life to everything else in Middle Earth, um, but is kind of intrinsically unknowable and so that's all to say that I love how much he comes up. You know, the moment Celebrim Bora references Elrond's father, I'm like, hell yeah. When it comes up again and Elrond brings it up, I thought that was so great. So I did love that. And, you know, Durin eventually, I think, kind of realizes how lucky he is and, and has that really nice conversation with his father. He's kind of the only of the characters we listened that can talk to his father or at least talk to him about their lives honestly because like we know that eventually Elendil will be a king and Isildur will inherit the crown for them but they certainly don't know that like they think that they're just you know father son daughter doing what they can for their country and having a good time like they don't really grasp their destinies yet and Lord of the Rings you know is not necessarily inherently a story about royalty and inheritance and stuff the way that uh, the distinguished competition is. So I thought it was kind of interesting to have that scene kind of talk, the, the king and the prince kind of talking about passing on the crown and what that means. And yet 
the older Durin going out of his way to be like, but you shouldn't think of me like that. Like I am your dad and I'm here for you and, and we can talk through anything that I thought was pretty sweet. Not least because, you know, this is me personally, but it's not, I don't think it's limited to just me. Lord of the Rings is, and my love of Lord of the Rings is something that I share with my dad and, and took from my yeah. dad and continue to share with my dad. Um, as I'm sure many of our listeners do, you know, it's one of those things that kind of gets passed down from generation to generation. So definitely a very worthy topic for the show itself to, to touch on. Yeah, it was interesting. I actually, I got to bring my dad to the premiere here in oh, Los Angeles. Oh, that's cute. I didn't know that. Yeah, which was something that I was really, really happy that I got to do. Because like you, and you and I have talked about this before, mm -hmm. about how, you know, we're we're both 90s babies. And then <laughs> we were both introduced to Lord of the Rings by our, our fathers, you know, kind of reading it to us and, you know, introducing us to it. And then seeing the movies together as they came out. And then seeing yeah. the films. And then, you know, it really became this this point of bonding. And, and, and that's true for a lot of people I talked to. Yeah. And so, um, like, I had a really good time bringing my dad to the premiere because... Yeah. One, my dad lives in Missouri and doesn't usually get to like see what I do. Um, and so I was like, this is this is my job. Um, and then but also like, it was really moving to get to share that with him, because that is something that means so much to both of us and has been a huge part of our, our you know, our relationship and, you know, our, our bond. And my dad loved it. He was very, very excited. He had a thousand theory. He was like, so the strangers Gandalf, right? And I was like, yeah. And, and then we like, we like immediately, we've been texting about it the whole time. That's not what characters in the show think. <laughs> no, but like he immediately has said, he's been having so much fun. Just, we've been having so much talk, fun talking about it and, and analyzing it. And that's been something that's, that's been really cool. But yeah, it's, it's something that, you know, we don't see, I mean, we there are a fair amount of, you know, dads in Lord of the Rings. I mean, we see Denethor is kind of the most famous, like, Jesus. bad dad. Right. <laughs> um, not very good. Um, but we see Elrond is sort of like, you know, he's, he's such a good dad. You have a lot of father figures in Lord of the Rings, like Bilbo and Elrond, who aren't necessarily the biological fathers of Aragorn or Frodo, but play that role in their lives. And yet, then at the same time, you have characters are constantly referred to Gimli, son of Goy. You know, who yes. knows what Arathorn was like, but that's how Aragorn is known by pretty much anyone who knows his true idea. Aragorn, son of Arathorn. So it is, you know, in that sense, kind of, you know, the patrilineal lineage is important. But yeah, you're right. We don't get a ton of, I mean, you know, one of the first things that happens in Lord of the Rings is, sorry, spoilers, Elendil getting killed and, and Isildur <laughs> having to, to fight in his place. Yeah, it's just, it's a really interesting kind of, um, you know, kind of theme. And it's not always specifically about like father-child relationship, but it's it's kind of about, like we talked about, it's about legacy. It's about sort of learning from the people that came before you and trying to carry on their legacy where you can and also learn from their mistakes where you can. And I think that's something that does feel very Tolkien. And I'm, I'm very yeah. interested that this show is, is continuing to explore that. Um, well, I want to shift gears a little bit. We're going to check in with the Southlands where um, we get to meet an interesting figure. We saw him teased a little bit at the end of the last episode. Um, but here we get to spend some time with um, Adar, played by Joseph Molle, who was uh, Benjamin Stark on Game of Thrones. He's our second Game of Thrones alum, in addition to Robert Arameo, who was yeah. baby Ned Stark. And here he is. He's a creepy dude. He's, he's a creepy, very yeah. creepy dude. Um, he's, uh, he looks to be an elf. Um, he's got the pointed ears. He speaks he elvish. He speaks elfish. 
Aaron Deere is like, uh, who the hell are you? And yeah. why, why are you hanging out with all these orcs? And he's sort of a, the, the orcs sort of revere and worship him. They're the ones who've, who've named him father, basically. And they, he's, he leads this, this group. Uh, what did you make of, of the introduction of this clearly bad dude? I don't want to like straight up call him a villain, but he's, he seems to be a villain. <laughs> right. I'm not really sure what to make of him yet, honestly, as I was, you know, the last episode was named after him. So clearly he's important, although you did a great job of explaining how his name means other things and resonates through the show in these other ways. We just got the blurry shot of him just barely coming into focus at the end of last episode. And then in this episode, it comes into focus. It's one of those things where it's kind of like, and here's the reveal. Here's who it is. And it's like, Okay, like it's it's definitely you know they they've set so much up of pitting elves and orcs against each other in the show so far that I guess it definitely is weird to see an elf allied with orcs, not least since the history of elves and orcs, as Tolkien detailed in the Silmarillion, is that orcs were originally made from elves and were kind of this corrupted version of of elf by by morgoth that's how morgoth made his first orcs was by capturing elves and torturing them and then by the time of lord of the rings they've developed their own kind of reproduction uh mechanisms so yeah i mean i i wish i could talk more to adar but i'm kind of just waiting to be told not, not to be told but waiting for the show to reveal to me uh what his deal is because it is jarring to see an elf working with orcs. What could drive an elf to do this? But, you know, early earlier in the, in the podcast, I was saying that one of the things I really wanted from this show and its portrayal of orcs was some kind of depth and personality and culture uh, rather than just bad guys. And so far, we've gotten a lot of rah, but their weird kind of relationship with Adar. It's kind of their life giver and their death dealer. You know, the, one of the orcs... Uh, who got attacked by Arndir last episode kind of calls or is called um, when an orc is damaged. And instead of healing the orc, he kills him in this very kind of up close, intimate way. So it's all really interesting. Um, I'm not quite sure what to make of it yet. It wasn't the most interesting thing to me that happened in the Southlands this episode. And, you know, since I was praising the Numenor stuff and the Khazad-Dum stuff and how they played off against each other, I will say that the Southland stuff in this episode was a little bit more of a mixed bag for me. There was some cool stuff, but I was also kind of left scratching my head in several places about the geography of it all or the mechanics of it all, how it was all kind of happening, how characters were either getting from here to here in a certain time frame or, or how they were staying there in a, in a certain time frame. I was, I was left a little confused by the Southland stuff in this episode, but there was also some really interesting stuff, which we haven't touched on yet, which is, for me, the conversation between Theo and the old man at the end of the episode. Yeah. Is the first thing that's really made the Southlands, like, interesting to me. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Theo. We, we learn that the orcs are looking for this sword hilt that he has um, obtained um, and, and discovered. And he has this conversation with the old man who talks about, you know, I, I'm not going to do the voice, but it's a very raspy, great voice where he's like, have you heard of him, lad? <laughs> do you have know you about heard Sauron? of Sauron? This is, we, we talk a lot about, you know, when we first 
went to the Southlands, there's this idea that, um, you know, these are the people who are descended from the people who aligned themselves with, with Sauron and with Morgoth the first time around. Um, and you sort of get the sense that for a lot of them, that's old history. That's not part of their lives. They don't have any great allegiance to, to, to that. They're just trying to survive, basically. And here you start to see that, you know, so there has been this sort of legacy of, of loyalty of like, oh, these were the good old days when we were loyal to Sauron. And so that's, that's a really interesting um, kind of development. Yeah, a lot of the stuff in the Southlands, I think we're kind of going to have to wait and see where it goes. You know, yeah. we, I, I, they've laid some clues and, and interested, introduced some interesting pieces, but I think there's a lot of wait and see. I will say there is, there is one line that sort of set off alarm belts for me in this episode, which is where um, Bronwyn is talking about the geography of the Southlands, and she references every village from here to Orodruin. And Orodruin is the original name of a giant volcano that mm-hmm, we all know mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. Uh, which is Mount Doom, right? which is the sort of centerpiece of, of Mordor. And so um, that is one where, unless you know your, your Tolkien lore and that, that you're would, would sort of be a nothing line, but that was the one where I was like, oh, we're talking about Mount Doom. Okay. So like, this is, I have a feeling that things are, are not going to be, peaceful and nice in the in the Southlands for for much longer. And I think that we may know the Southlands by another name, let's say. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I don't know. I already said Numenor gets sunk in this episode. So, uh, but, you know, you haven't heard the name Southlands before, have you, in Lord of the Rings? <laughs> it goes by a different name that kind of makes it feel like this is more of an intermediary stage, maybe, between different phases of the South being a, a dark, fiery place. And so, yeah, I loved that revelation that this character that we met already and, and seemed like a pleasant enough character is actually this hardcore Sauron believer. And that um, <laughs> the Arendir's comrades, who were very disdainful of the Southern men and was kind of portrayed to us and seen as him based on his relationship with Bronwyn as maybe a little over the top guys. Like, I think we can let this go. You know, those guys that, that died in the trenches may really have had the rights of it, right of it when it came to the, uh, the Southlanders. Um, they really did love Morgoth and Sauron. And it's not even just a case of these young boys like Theo and that young boy in the bar from the first episode. Uh, you know, I've been, been kind of thinking of them as like, oh, these young characters that are growing up in this horrible, you know, uh, military-occupied martial law, uh, hard-scrabble land, and and are kind of entranced by uh, legends and visions of greatness, even if they were demonic. We certainly have seen that, and, and Theo may be a decent kid. Maybe he'll turn out all right, but he certainly does have, <laughs> have the ability to ignite the hilt, because even though the orcs call it a hilt, it clearly can... Um, regrow its blade if you give it blood uh kind of lightsaber style that you know in addition to these to these young men who are kind of enchanted by that possibility you also have these old lifers who are like no you're right like that we do need to go back to that i thought that that was all very interesting and you know obviously a pretty um morally gray stuff and and arendir and bronwyn may may find themselves kind of more in the minority than they expected. It's an interesting development. Absolutely. There's there's clearly a lot of foot. This was an episode where a lot of plot happens. We we learn a lot of 
new details. And, you know, if the first couple episodes were about sort of setting the stage, this one is about, there's a, there's a lot of reveals here. Yeah. I think it's, I would say maybe more like reveals and like character development and stuff than necessarily plot. But by the end of the episode, I really felt like the plot wheels were in motion. You know, I mean, I've, I've been observing uh, people in my feed kind of, uh, talking about Rings of Power, you know, as with any streaming show, especially a weekly one, um, this is not necessarily something where everybody's going to be watching it week to week as soon as it comes out or before it comes out like you and I are. Some people are going to get to it slowly or some people I'm sure are just waiting for the first season to be over uh, before they binge it all. And so I've seen this reaction. I saw it at the time where people kind of watch the first episode and they're like, huh, you know, nice, pretty, but I'm not sure where it's going. You know, not a lot happened. And, and I get that. And I think Amazon gets that. And I think that's why they released the first two episodes at once, because that second episode really helps you get a sense of the show and its movement and, and how these things accumulate. But there is an element of that in, in episode one, at least, where it's so much just because you're introducing us to everything and everybody, um, even more than, than the distinguished competition had to. But by the end of this episode, I was like, okay, wheels are in motion, stuff is happening. And, you know, and and I can believe that the assembling of this Numenorean strike team at the end of the episode is going to go somewhere because we also saw some movement with Arendir's plot. And we've seen uh, elves die and orcs die and, and fighting start to breaking out in the Southlands over last week's episode and this week's episode. So now I really trust that, you know, when the Numenoreans get there, things are going to happen and, and things are happening. And so I love that, especially because, you know, the things that we know are coming, whether it's the great wave or the forging of the rings, all these things that we're alluding to because the show is setting them up that might not happen for a little while, you know, things are going to be happening before then and, and it's all going to build. And, um, and that's something that I was always confident in the show, the show's ability to do is that, you know, I, I got the sense that this is, very meticulously put together and eventually things are going to be start building and momentum is going to build and it's going to feel really awesome. And we're just starting to get into that, which is really cool. So I think we're probably wrapping up, but I wanted to, to ask you, you know, last week we kind of inaugurated Gandalf watch for every time <laughs> the stranger does a Gandalf thing. Uh, no stranger in this episode, obviously the Harfoots get their uh, bye week this episode, but there is a little bit, there is a little bit of Sauron watch. I think that also has to go on. Cause it's very interesting that the old man, I'm sure you love this line. I'm sure most people listening love this line when he was like, Oh, you saw the meteor, right? That like, that means Sauron's coming. And, and it kind of does, but not in the way that he thinks, um, which I, I thought was great. Because, uh, you know, that's maybe something the show is is trying to, you know, maybe this guy is Sauron. But, uh, you know, so far he, he's done a lot more Gandalf stuff than, than Sauron stuff. I would say the Fireflies dying as a result of his meddling is, is the closest to a Sauron thing. But, of course, he's sent there to preempt Sauron and to start seeding the resistance against Sauron. And so his arrival does mean that Sauron is coming and, and Sauron is about to manifest again. It's just the Valar, you know, their preemptive strike, basically. If it is Gandalf, like if, it, I, that, if it's that Gandalf, seems, that's that, what I mean. That seems to make the most sense. Or if it's any of the Astari, like if it's Saruman right. or a Blue Wizard or something. Yeah, still, still, fingers crossed for a Blue Wizard. We would love. It would be crazy to just have one. I would love it because <laughs> I love everything about the Blue Wizards. Um, right? Maybe there was another meteor that crashed somewhere else, and then they're going to meet, and they're going to be like, "Hey, it's us, the two Blue Wizards." Right. I, I would say maybe the single biggest knock against it being Gandalf is that he's the he's supposed to be the last of the Astari to reach Middle yeah. Earth, and so it would be like if this is Gandalf, 
it'd be like, oh, it's crazy. The meteor just crashed. It kind of reminded me of the four others that have happened in the, in the past year. <laughs> so it could be someone else, or maybe it's the first, maybe it's Sar- uh, Saruman. Yeah, there's, I have so many questions because, again, like I still feel like all signs point to Gandalf, but then there's right. a couple things where I'm like, well, if he's here, then where is everybody else? Exactly. Like, so so I, I still don't know. I still have a lot of questions. Right, and that could be, and that the order of the Astari could be something that they're playing with, you know? So Whatever. In, in any case... Yeah, but 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 it's interesting to be like you know whether or not a, a certain character is or is not Sauron in the way that the stranger may or may not be Gandalf. You're getting Sauron vibes from different characters from different corners of the story. Obviously, Adar is a big one, but he doesn't. He, he seems too much of his own character. Maybe again, I, I haven't gotten a total sense of him yet. You have. Hallbrand and and kind of the evil simmering with him yeah. is 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 He's very Sauron. He's in no. Numenor, which is a great place to be if you want to be Sauron one day. Yeah, I'm really curious. I feel like there's you know the, it's definitely the sense that evil is all around. Yeah, it could be anywhere. Right, and and maybe we haven't even met him yet. Maybe we exactly. have, and it's going to be a surprise. Actually, surprise. Poppy Proudfellow is now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, surprise right (laughs) but no yeah this is something that's been kind of fun with this show is is you know you and i again the the tricky thing about making a prequel is you kind of know the bare bones of what's going to happen you know what happens to elendil you know what happens to to galadriel all these things but there are these mysteries that that are really intriguing like where where is sauron where is the stranger you know there's just like all of these i have a lot of questions even as somebody who's like you and i who have reported on the show and been tracking every piece of knowledge about it for the last you know years i have a lot of questions and i kind of like that i have no idea where a lot of these storylines are going to go especially when we do know where a lot of the storylines are going to go so i i I think from a storytelling perspective i've been really impressed at how they've they've managed to sort of balance keep the intrigue both for the people who are completely new to this world and for people who are super nerds and think they know where it's going. I like how it's managing to keep everybody on their toes a little bit. And I, I right. can't wait for them to continue that. Right. And, and, and their bread, their trail of breadcrumbs can kind of lead you down the wrong path. Like I was saying how, Oh, I guess that's the Arkenstone because they've been talking about the Silmarils. No, right. it's Mithril. And you know, I think that that now that I think about it, I think it was a great idea to, to have that one shot of Sauron, in the opening of the show where he looks exactly like he does in the beginning of Lord of the Rings that we know he's in the, the, big, big the big armor and the, and the aesthetic that of course matches you know. the hilt that Theo now has yeah. that, that, you know, Sauron is not known for carrying a sword. Uh, he's kind of beyond it and, and his weapon, at least in Lord of the Rings is kind of this big mace thing, but that sword is clearly, it looks like Sauron's armor and stuff. And so you're looking for that. And aside from the hilt, you don't see it. And yet you see, evil being spread or, or simmering beneath in kind of these from people who don't look like a towering dark Lord who are a handsome guy like Halbrand or a seemingly harmless old man, like, like the one from the Southlands or Adar who looks like an elf and maybe is an elf, you know, you're getting all these hints, which I really like. I mean, even though Sauron is the archetypal dark Lord of fantasy fiction, you know, to name another distinguished competition show you know in like wheel of time like their dark lord who's clearly modeled or riffing on sauron is a character who manifests and talks to the characters and and kind of has personality and sauron's not really like that he's i like when he's disembodied and the way that the movies did that was by making him literally an eye which is a little more figurative in the books um but i like this idea that you don't know what 
corner he's hiding behind because it doesn't need to be him for his evil to spread, you know? And so, um, you know, I like that so far. And we know that eventually he'll be involved in, in the Numenor storyline. Eventually he'll be involved in the Celebrimbor storyline. So it's really interesting to kind of be on, on Sauron watch and be like, wait, is this, is this an evil that should be dealt with? Is this an evil that should be dealt with? Or is it just kind of normal, you know, pettiness? And that's one of the things from, you know, Tolkien's description of him specifically in the second age is that he could disguise himself as incredibly fair. You know, they um, can, you know, meaning that like he could appear in, in Sauron was hot. He could look hot when he wanted to. Which I um, I really hope we get hot Sarah. <laughs> I, I can't wait for the discourse around that one. But um, no, yeah. So I'm I'm uh, the idea that he, you know, by the time of the Lord of the Rings, his, you know, a lot of his power has sort of diminished with the loss of the ring. You know, we see him in the Hobbit movies where he's sort of just regaining corporeal form a little bit as the the necromancer, right? That sort of storyline, and um, yeah. But here we, I have a lot of questions, and I'm very curious to see where where it goes next yeah absolutely well we're going to take a quick break uh but when we come back uh we're going to hear from some of the people who made this episode you can hear my interviews with disa and muriel themselves sophia Nomvede and cynthia adai robinson stay tuned Please enjoy my interviews with Sophia Nombete and Cynthia Adai Robinson. Thank you so much, Sophia, for, for joining me to talk a little bit about episode four. I'm so excited to kind of dive in and, and pick your brain a little bit about, about this, this episode. Thank you, Devin. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I have literally about 20 minutes ago finished watching it. So I was, I'm doing this right up to the wire. <laughs> So I'm like fresh off the uh, fresh off the press of, of um, watching this amazing app. So I'm really excited, and thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you, Emma. You you, you did your homework. You you came prepared. <laughs> yeah. I want to start by talking a little bit about that big Disa scene where we you you do the resonating. We get to see you you sing to the mountain. Tell me a little bit about everything you remember about filming that amazing scene. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! If I remember rightly, I don't believe that scene was supposed to be as epic, if I if I may say, um, as it was. We knew that we wanted to see her do some of this. And, and this is, in fact, a lament. So it's kind of an extension of the resonating. Um, so it's kind of a lament. It's a plea to the rocks, as is the, the name of the, the piece. Um, but I remember Wayne and I sitting together and just just having this incredible conversation about what do we do with this? This feels like the very essence of it is something quite powerful. And by metaphor, this is about drawing to the depths of your soul and using your voice to literally move mountains. And and that is what each and every one of us have, um, I believe, the power to do. We just have to see it and believe it within ourselves and be able to access it. And so we wanted to lift that out of Disa and and kind of display that. And so we deliberated and collaborated and spoke and played. And I remember the night before we shot that, Wayne was on the phone to me. He believes in Disa, as everyone does so much. He really had a huge hand in her and particularly this moment. Um, 
and he was on a keyboard, a tiny little keyboard in his house going, do you need to just go higher here? Okay, <laughs> oh, no, no. Oh, yeah, 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 you're right. Should I get to the C? Should I get to the C or the D? Okay, the D. No, we'll go down. I've had a glass of wine. Let's go down. Let's go. <laughs> and so, but we were really, we wanted to make it really special and really powerful. Um, we shot the entire thing live. So that's a live performance and was a live performance the whole day. Rob, who plays Elrond, him see Elrond seeing that for the first time, hearing it for the first time, is Rob hearing it for the first time. The cast, the crew, no one had any kind of ears or eyes on it until the day that we shot. And so it felt like this moment, I mean, it was silent in the room. It was just completely silent in the room. And I'm pretty sure I zoned out, blacked out for like the whole day and just looked up at this light that was above me on set and just thought, just take every ounce of energy, whatever, what draw from everything in your life and plea. And with Wayne and the incredible dynamite Bear McCreary, this, this moment was born. Um, yeah, and it was very special. It was a very special day on set, very special day on set. And, and everyone was, there were tears and, and all the rest of it and goosebumps and all of the above. So um, I, I feel really proud of it, really proud of it and excited for everyone involved. That's so magical. I mean, I mean, yeah, was that part of the initial casting process? You know, when you auditioned, did you know you needed to sing or was this sort of something they were like, so by the way? <laughs> <laughs> by the way, um, they did ask for, but I remember actually speaking to the amazing Theo Park who cast the show. She, for the audition, there was, uh, they sort of said on the breakdown, we would love to hear a song if you've got it. But it kind of wasn't like a deal breaker, apparently. Theo was telling me when I saw her a couple of weeks ago. She said, it, you know, what's really special is it wasn't actually a deal breaker. I'm like, what if you weren't able to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and so, but I sang, for my audition, I sang Ain't No Sunshine which is a, a song very dear to my heart. And um, I was very heavily pregnant at the time. I was nine months pregnant, in fact. And so, yeah, it was just a real song that was very dear to me. I've got to get my hands on that self-tape one day. I'm, I'm calling out for that self-tape. I really want to see it one day. And, um, and so that's the song that I sang. And then over time, I, th- I don't even know if they remembered that we could do it, but we knew that there was going to be some resonating and they were like, oh, do you think you... And then I think we started to play and everyone was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so we ran with it. And um, I kind of feel like it's this vocal medley that we made of kind of like sonar meets opera meets gospel meets whatever you need it to be in that moment. So, um, so yeah, they knew I could... I had to dust off the pipes a little, but but they knew I could throw out a note or two. <laughs> yeah, and it's such a beautiful concept. This idea of like you know you're you're speaking directly to to the rock and the mountain, but also like you said, mm. it's a lament. It's such a beautiful like concept that 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 just seems like it's it's so thoughtful. I, I really love it. Oh, thank you. All credit to the team. You know, all credit to JD Patrick, uh, Wayne, the director, Bear McCreary. They were kind of like. You know, it was on their shoulders that I stood to be able to to carry that piece. Um, they had a vision, and and we took it and ran with it. That's so magical, and I, I love the relationship um, we've seen between Disa and Durin. Um, it has that kind of like playful vibe, but it's also deeply romantic. I what interested <laughs> you about that that relationship? Um, that it's a really solid marriage. That it's a really solid, unapologetic partnership between a male and a female dwarf and and 
you know, they flirt like they just met, like they dated like a week ago, you know, and, and it's kind of like they keep all of their passion and their relationship alive. United they stand, you know, and at the core of them is love and respect and loyalty for each other and to their children and the kingdom. But in a lot of ways, they're very different, you know. Um, and so to have the same amount of love and the same amount of positive energy running through them as a unit, but to think and feel sometimes differently or see things maybe one way or another, that combined is a recipe for a really exciting relationship on screen. Um, and I think to see a little bit of love and a little bit of hug and a little bit of kissy kissy is not such a bad thing between dwarves. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I, I, I love Owain's performance too. He's, he's so brash, but he has this love for his wife. Tell me oh. a little bit about working with him to sort of like, you know, figure out that, that chemistry between the two of them. He is uh, a dream. He is a dream partner on and off screen. He's a dream friend. And I remember the way that we met was me with my daughter in my arms. He was eight weeks old at the time. And we just got into the apartment hotels we were staying in. And Owen popped out of a lift and we just looked at each other and had this kind of Cheshire cat grin and burst out laughing. And uh, we'd never even met. <laughs> and we were like we're going to be all right. We're going to be all right. And then I kind of like um, took the baby up and we just had a cup of tea. We just had a cup of tea and, um, and just talked and we played and we laughed. And what's really important is there is a safety between us and a trust between us and um, a respect. And so when you have that infrastructure in any relationship, suddenly you can, you can go for it because you know that kind of net and that, that solid foundation is there. And so we just became better and better friends. And of course, what that translates to is, is to be able to explore a, a high level of chemistry on screen. Um, the friendship is very, very real. And, and so we really, we get excited. Thank you so much, Devon, for saying that because we get really excited when, when because we know it's real you know um so uh so it's it's nice that it kind of that it translates so well so thank you very much and he is a joy really grumpy about his costume though can I just say <laughs> only grumpy on the first day while he got used to it because he can't eat watching my husband on-screen husband eat nuts peanuts is a joy that everyone should be privy to just FYI he'll kill me for saying that but it's true yeah, I, I, I think Rob said something f similar where he was just like watching him try to eat under all the prosthetics and the Honestly. beard. Honestly. I just remember going, to, so the first scene that we shot was the dinner scene. So that was the first scene that we did together. And we were all like, okay, you know, I mean, I'm just sweating at this point because it's like my first scene. This is my first like big television gig. So I'm just all over the shop. And I just remember, I hadn't seen Owen for a bit. And I was like, and then I found you. <laughs> sitting on a step somewhere and I said oh you again he was like yeah I'm a bit annoyed at the moment <laughs> why because I've not had anything to eat I'm starving I'm too hot and so um he was the grumpiest you've ever seen and we just laughed and me and Rob would sit there in the green room with our like big chicken tank wrap you know tank was like um, just just you're right oh I is everything okay Oh, okay. You enjoy your straw food? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. Oh, man. I, I get grumpy, too, when my blood sugar gets too low. I so know. I you and me both. You and me both. 
but yeah, it was great. The three of us are, um, yeah, are quite a unit. And so um, it was just three friends playing on screen. It was just, it was just a group of friends. It was just this little trio of love that just got to kind of skip onto set and, um, and play. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to ask about, you know, working with Rob. I love how he sort of like, you know, comes into this, this, into cause of doom and, you know, has such a warm relationship with, with Deesa and Duran. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what, what's he like on set? Tell me a little bit about kind of figuring out, you know, that, that relationship with him. He's incredible. I mean, I, to my daughter, he's uncle Bob. He was the only person with her and, and my husband on her first birthday. They had a cake smashing competition, the two of them. Robert Arameo and my daughter and he took her swimming for the first time she swam for the you know he's family he's family and then on set I mean he's an incredible mind I call him a scholar he'll say I'm not a scholar sir don't you can't tell people I'm a scholar but he is he's just an extraordinary mind and so I got to see the Rob that would just walk into our house and open the fridge and, and, and start taking food um, like a son to me. And then on set, he morphs into this extraordinary character. And an offset, we would learn together. You know, Rob Owen and I would sit together and we would work and we would work and we would work scripts and work dialogue and use references. Of, and he's a brilliant mind with Tolkien. He's a Tolkien expert and a Middle Earth expert. And he, he would just take everything and kind of apply it. And we would feed and we would learn and we would read and then we would play. And on set, he's so strong and so generous and intense in the best possible way. You know, he, he's a real kind of, yeah, he's a real inspiration for, the, for this story, for sure. He's great. <laughs> Don't let it go to his head, exactly. I know. I'm giving these boys too many compliments, damn it. They better be saying the same about me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to make sure they return the favor, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I mean, you mentioned, you know, you auditioned when you were extremely pregnant. You moved yeah. to New Zealand as a new mom. What, yeah. like, what has this experience been like for you? I mean, it sounds like your life kind of changed, you know, tremendously with this show. Yeah, it, it's been life-changing. It's been exactly that, Devin, like, uh, and thank you for acknowledging that, by the way, because, um, it's a big freaking deal. It was a big deal. And when you're in the moment, and I think like any mother, parent, when you're in the moment, you just keep moving. And it's only when you look back or somebody like you says, oh, and by the way, you did this, that you go, yeah. It was really, really empowering. And what it did was I found a warrior in me that I never knew I had because it was tough. There were times that were tough. When I was shooting those scenes, the costume opens and I breastfeed. So I'm literally trying to shoot a scene and, and feeding my baby in between takes as, as best and as how I possibly could, leaking all over the shop, running back on, shooting scenes. I'm up at two o'clock in the morning to get into costume. Like, it was tough, but it was empowering. And she and everyone supported me every single step of the way. It takes a village, and 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 that's what I had, thankfully, in New Zealand and um, in the people around me. It is a real credit and an eye opener to to women and to mothers and what we're capable of, and, and and to what we have to do to keep moving. And these two incredible life changing journeys happening in parallel was incredible, so exciting. It humbled me, it drove me, it inspired me. 
And sometimes it had me crying a lot of the time. I was like, please, I just need to shoot for soon. But um, yeah, it was it was a really, really great shining light on the possibilities, the endless possibilities um, of life, actually. And not without a huge support system in production, in my cast, in the crew. And in my dear, sweet husband, who walked alongside me, uh, taking care of her every single step of the way. So, yeah, it was pretty special. A really, really special time. And you know she's in the show, right? Did you spot her? I did not. Where is she? Blink and you'll miss her, my poor girl. She is. Betrayed me for the half foots. She is. (laughs) She's in. So episode one, the half foot world. Um, there's this little moment when they're doing the reveal. So Poppy and Nori have just come back and 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 they're doing the, the reveal of all the halfbirds. And there's a little baby that goes, and that is Deesa's a real little girl. Oh my gosh. So she, she's following in mom's footsteps. She's, she's following in her footsteps. She hit the screen before I did. How rude. <laughs> truly, truly a family affair in, in yes, every, every sense exactly. of the <laughs> all right great well i will let you go but thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me it's been and so much fun to to unpack this and and congrats on the show i cannot wait to see the rest of rest of the season thank you so much thank you very much evan thank you for your time it was great to talk and um yeah i I hope you enjoy the rest of, of the run can't wait to see it take care Thank you so much for for joining me, Cynthia, to talk a little bit about episode four. I'm so excited to to pick your brain about everything that happens in this episode. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's it's nice to finally be able to uh, sort of get a little bit more in depth. I've been I've been limited in what I can say. Uh, still, am somewhat limited, but um, but yeah, this is obviously a big a uh, big episode in terms of seeing a little bit more of. Uh, where we're going to go, um, sort of in within Numenor and within the storyline. Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the things I wanted to ask about is you know we met Muriel last episode you know but here we get to learn you know not only just a little bit more about her but a little bit more about you know this vision she's been having of, of Numenor's potential downfall and kind of her relationship with this this you know kingdom that she's running. What interested you about sort of that reveal of this you know vision that that she's grappling with? Well, I remember when I read this episode way back when, it feels like it was so long ago now, and it's interesting to sort of read something on the page, film it, and then see it, which are three very different things. And obviously, people who are familiar with the lore or even just familiar with the inspiration, which is essentially the the legend of Atlantis, you certainly know the end point. You know that it's it's a tragic story. Uh, arguably a cautionary tale. And so knowing where the story ultimately goes, what I was intrigued by is sort of what is the lead up to that moment going to entail, as well as the idea that, you know, she is seeing these visions and, and there's that question of, is this predetermined or is there something I can do to prevent this vision from happening? And are there steps that I can take to sort of change the course of these events? Uh, and, and ultimately, whatever decision she does make, it's there's no guarantee. She's still not going to be certain that that is something that would be avoided. But what's unnerving for her is in episode three, when Galadriel initially arrives in Numenor, 
that is the beginning of the vision that she's seen. So she immediately knows that whatever is happening, it's, it's kicking off now. So everything that sort of proceeds Galadriel's arrival would presumably be part of that sort of end point. So yeah, it's interesting. And of course, I was fascinated just from a practical sense of what's this going to look like when it, when it airs? Because, um, you know, on the day in filming it, I just had a giant fan blowing at me. So <laughs> it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty cool and pretty impressive to sort of see it fully realized. And we have an incredible um, sort of post-production visual effects army, arguably, because it takes a lot of people to create those kind of effects. And um, I think when you sort of marry the two, when you have this amazing practically built set, and then you sort of layer this incredible, beautifully sort of rendered CGI wave, it's pretty epic. It's pretty crazy. So I, I, you know, when the episode was released and when it aired, I was seeing it along for the first time with, with everyone else at home. So it's, it's kind of uh, nice to see it fully realized. Yeah, that must be amazing because I know, you know, I know a lot of people have talked about how beautiful the sets of Numenor were and how a lot of it was practical, but I imagine, you know, this giant wave crashing down, you kind of got to wait to see what it looks like on screen as, as an actor. <laughs> yeah, definitely had to, uh, you know, use my, use my imagination and, and have my mind's eye. But I also remember, you know, for that particular moment when, when the episode begins, it's sort of this ceremonial blessing of the children. And it's kind of nice to see, you know, even though it is part of her, her dream, as it were, it's nice to see a side of Numenor that, you know, is a little bit more rooted in, in tradition and ceremonial. And I remember on the day, you know, we had a few real babies there. So I was very aware of, you know, kind of just the delicate nature of, of the moment. And even, I believe that, uh, you know, obviously with our show, we have a lot of secrecy to sort of protect plot points. So I'm not sure that um, the people who sort of uh, brought their beautiful baby um, might not have had a sense of what's happening in the scene exactly. They just <laughs> see me walking away with their baby towards a giant fan. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great way to kick off the episode. And I think that jump from her vision to when it cuts to you know, media waking up in, in her chambers, you really get that sense of this woman is really all alone with the burden of these visions and, and what she knows um, that nobody else knows and that she hasn't shared with anyone else. So, you know, you see her and she's alone in the tower and it's, you know, I think just that sense of she's really carrying this alone and she has to decide what to do next to potentially just change the trajectory of that vision. You know, is this vision for certain going to happen or is there something to be done to change this? Yeah, it's interesting that we get to see Muriel in public, you know, in the throne room, you know, greeting, you know, her kingdom. But then we also see her in private where she has these dreams and these doubts. How did you kind of want to approach, you know, playing her in, you know, those two very different spaces? I mean, I think it's hard because obviously there's the idea of what it is to feel all alone. It's a hard thing to play if you're just sort of given that directive. But I think there's just that sense of, you know, again, the public and the private self and just her genuine desire to make sure that she's doing the right thing. I mean, I think there's the, the pain of, you know, the very relatable situation of 
her father very unwell. And, you know, we obviously see in, in episode four, we, we finally see the King because I think there's whispers of, well, you know, there's rumors that he's sort of, you know, stashed away, but nobody has seen him. And I think, you know, just that moment of when you do see her with the King and, and it's essentially a woman and her father, a woman and her ailing father, you know, there's something extremely vulnerable about that. And so I think just that sense of, you know, the reality of her situation and, and the sort of relatability of that situation. And then one of my favorite moments where Galadriel intrudes and sort of, you know, it hits home for her when she walks in and she sees the two of them, you know, it's a very sort of uh, intensely vulnerable moment. And um, I always think with fantasy, you know, you sort of have the grandiosity of, of the genre, the sort of epicness and the scale but you also have the sort of the intimacy. And so I think that to me, those were the scenes I was, I was really excited to play because I, I kind of feel like it sort of grounds it and it, and it sort of puts it into a very, yeah, just a very relatable space. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love that scene with um, the Palantir with, with, with Galadriel and, and Muriel. It's these two, you know, very powerful women who essentially, you know, want the same thing, but they see totally different paths to, you know, protecting their people and, 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 you know, protecting and, and defeating evil. Tell me a little bit about, about filming that, that scene with, with the Palantir. Well, first of all, I geeked out just because there was one. <laughs> you know, I remember walking onto that particular set and it's just sort of this orb in the middle of the room. And I was I was definitely hopeful that I wasn't going to have to like clutch at it and ride around the floor. I was a little bit nervous <laughs> that I might have to have, you know, an awkward moment with it. Um, I, I didn't know sort of in our sort of version, you know, how we would sort of present the Palantir and, and sort of how it's used. but. Um, one of the things I really love about some of the choices that JD and Patrick and the writers have made is even sort of bringing Galadriel into the fold and sort of linking her to Numenor in this manner, because this is sort of the area where we don't necessarily know what Galadriel was up to. Even in this uh, sort of scenario with Miriel, we don't know that you know, we, we've never known her to sort of have this exchange. But what I think is a great opportunity, as you said, to sort of show these two women who want, in essence, the same thing and are very sort of, um, they have their sense of conviction and their sense of protection for people at large. Uh, they have that in common. I think there is that moment and connection of, a um, you know, maybe kindred spirit is too, too strong of a word initially. But the fact that they join forces and align, you know, again, I think th this is the part that as I read the scripts and, and as we were getting to play them, I was the most excited for because to me, it felt like this feels new. This feels new to sort of do it in this manner and to have these women align. So, you know, even just, you know, getting to work with Morvid, who, you know, her depiction of Galadriel and her steely determination, like, like a dog with a bone, it's like, you know, she just is so, you know, sort of of a singular mind and a singular focus in, in what it is that she has to do. And I loved playing opposite her. I mean, I love, I love her version of Galadriel because it's like, she's just so, she's just so cool. <laughs> like, you know, you're sort of fangirling your, your, your fellow co-star, but um but yeah, I love that there was this opportunity to bring these two characters together 
um, in a way that I think is really powerful and makes you kind of want to see where they go from this point. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I also love, um, you know, kind of the relationship between Muriel and Farazan. And, you know, Tristan Gravel is, is he's, he's so great in the show. Tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of working with him and, um, you know, to kind of flesh out that relationship. Well, what's really lovely is that Tristan and I had a chemistry read to, in order to, you know, ultimately be cast. And at the point that we were hired, we were very much in lockdown. So we were many, many months into lockdown, obviously in different parts of the world. We live in different different cities. And when the time came to do sort of our final reads, our final auditions, we did a, a virtual chemistry read. <laughs> so, you know, we we exchanged phone numbers. I remember we we hopped on the phone. We didn't know who we were playing and we just knew that we were cousins. Um, and we didn't know much else. And so we were both trying to piece things together and and try to get a sense of not just our individual characters, but what our dynamic would be. It's like, are they cousins who get along? Is there animosity? You know, what's what's the vibe? And what I really love about Tristan's interpretation of Farazan is that, you know, you you kind of want to see how he arrives at the most extreme version of himself. But instead of starting in a place of a sort of a, you know, mustachio twirling villain, you know, you have a sense of this man cares as deeply for his people as Miguel does, as Galadriel does. Um, everybody, you know, is doing what they believe is is the right thing and taking the steps that they believe are the right steps to take and sort of their differing paths in terms of their overall philosophy for Numenorean society about the way forward. You know, it's interesting when I watched the episode and, you know, when the episode was released, it was the first time I was seeing it as well. And a lot of um, Tristan scenes I hadn't seen because I wasn't there. <laughs> so it was really wonderful, actually, for me to sort of see how he would sort of um, charm and speak to his contingency and see that him connecting to people because there's just this sense that for the people who are not really keen on what you know, King Palantir sort of was uh, sort of putting forward and his, and thereby his daughter, Miriel, you know, whether it's sensing an opportunity or I think more likely just a genuine belief in, I know the way to go. And this is not currently the direction we seem to be going in and picking up on the fact that other people are very much in that same vein. So it's actually been wonderful for me to see what he was doing sort of on his side of Numenor, because, uh, you know, I would have read those scripts way back when, but now to get to see it, it's like, he's just such a powerful force. And when you know where his character ultimately goes, you know, I myself am very intrigued to see that journey for that character. Yeah. And I imagine for you guys as actors, especially for Numenor, where you're sort of like, you're literally on your own little island. It must be so interesting to finally, you know, get to watch the show and be like, oh yeah, here's what they were filming over in Kaza Doom. And this is what was happening in the Southlands. Absolutely. I mean, we, we had the good fortune. I mean, it was always dependent on your schedule, but you know, if you ever wanted to do a set visit somewhere, you could ask on your day off to see the Southlands or to, you know, kind of see Kaza Doom. Although that set, you know, there's sort of pieces of that set. Obviously, when you see the sort of um, fully rendered image when they're in the depths of Khazad Doom, as impressive the landscapes are in New Zealand, 
Casa Doom, when they sort of are in those wide shots, obviously, <laughs> right. um, you know, uh, a CGI situation. But having said that, I did have the opportunity to visit a few other sets. And what was so striking, because I, I realized in watching the episode, one of the set visits I did was a scene in Casa Doom with Elrond and Jurin, Rob Arameo and Owain Arthur. And, you know, they have to do scale work. So I remember the day that I visited, it was this really fascinating process of a wine sitting in a chair and Rob sort of maybe standing on a ladder. <laughs> it was just kind of like, oh, they have a very different process over here. <laughs> you know, they're sort of standing in front of a rock wall doing the scale work. And it was actually just very eye-opening because I realized, oh, you know, for some, some of the other worlds, it's a, it's a completely different process and, and different set of demands that they have to achieve what they need to achieve. Whereas I think for some people, when they would visit Numenor, we had the fully built set. We were not as exposed to the elements as some of my lovely Harford friends were. <laughs> so out of all the worlds, we definitely had the, the most comfortable, uh, comfortable sets. And um, the scene sort of on the docks when uh, I send Galadriel off and the petals of, of the white tree of Nimloth start to fall through the sky. Um, that was my first day on the Numenor set. Oh, wow. Um, it wasn't my first day, but it was my first day on that set. And I, you know, sort of in the preparation, you know, I had done all my costume fittings. I knew what my costume was. I hadn't seen other costumes. I'd walked through Numenor when there were no sort of background artists there, when there was no crew there. So the first day you know, they get you all ready and then they sort of bring you last. So I was sort of the last person to sort of step onto the set or one of the last people. And I was taken aback at just to see the sort of the world inhabited by actual Numenorians in, in this sort of vibrant palette of colors with the water sort of lapping a boat at the ready, people in the boat oaring around. <laughs> you know, it was astonishing because I just, I, I just hadn't seen that. That was sort of one of those moments of it really hit me what I was working on. It really was like, oh my gosh, like this is this is huge. This is epic. This is this is insane. And it's a powerful moment. You know, that episode is directed by Wayne Chayip. I worked with him. I would say almost exclusively on the Numenor scenes. So I think anything that you see that takes place in within Numenor, I worked with Wayne on. And so he was pretty instrumental for me in really trying to kind of figure out how Miriel moved through the world, you know, how she carried herself, how she sort of um, came across in terms of her burden of having to hold on to all this information. And so we worked pretty closely together and, and, you know, whether it was myself and Tristan or myself and Morvid or myself and Lloyd Owen, who plays um, Elendil, I had the good fortune of a lot of these really sort of more intimate scenes in the larger landscape of, of this world. And so there was really that desire to, again, ground it in something that felt like it was coming from a place of truth, coming from a place of emotional yeah, just emotional honesty and connectivity to these other characters. Yeah, because like you said, you know, I mean, this is a story about elves and dwarves and prophecies, but but you know, the idea of 
a woman, you know, grappling with her ill father, trying to do right by her country. Those are very, I imagine that would be helpful to have those sort of grounding pillars, if, if you will. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I think back to what was actually going on in the world, you know, I hesitate to draw too strong of a parallel, but I did arrive in New Zealand in December of 2020. And as you can remember, there was a lot going on in the world, certainly a lot going on in the US. And I just had a lot on my mind. And it wasn't that hard to sort of reach for things. And even, again, the vulnerability of sitting alongside your your father, you know, as he's ailing in his bed, it wasn't hard for me to sort of reach for those things. And so in some ways, a lot of the performance and and where I would go and what I was trying to represent was just like what I knew people were going through out in the real world, especially just, you know, people that I personally knew. Um, And so I was always going back to that because that's sort of, that's just where I knew to go. You know, you can sort of have the academic sort of text laid out before you, but in order for me to be able to inhabit that, I have to sort of go with what I know. Um, And I just knew for the state of the world and just for what I knew people personally to be going through, that was sort of very much running through my mind on most days. That makes total sense. Absolutely. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for for taking the time to chat with me. This is such a fascinating episode and I I cannot wait to see where the rest of the season goes. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, mean, I, I know where it goes, but as I said, from from this moment on, from episode four forward, um, I haven't seen any of these episodes either. So, you know, I read them way back when. I certainly know what happens in my world. I know what happens in the other worlds, but it's been a real joy just to see my fellowship, my, my castmates and all the crew and creatives um, just sort of, yeah, seeing it unfold. Um, it's been really beautiful. So um, thank you for thank you for taking the time to, to talk to me. It's nice to talk about it. <laughs> I'm sure it's nice. Absolutely. Well, thank <laughs> you and have a great rest of your day and I'll, I'll talk to you later. Great. Thank you so much. Our thanks to Sophia Nomvede and Cynthia Adai-Robinson for joining us. And our thanks to you for listening and joining us as we delve deep into the rings of power. If you like the show, please rate and follow the show. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and come find me and Christian on social media and tell us your theories. Thanks so much for joining us. And that's it for this episode of All Rings Considered. If you liked what you heard, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at at Devin Kogan and at CM Holub. This episode of All Rings Considered is hosted by Devin Kogan and Christian Holub. Produced by Devin Kogan, Christian Holub, Chanel Johnson, Sammy Junio, Lauren Klein, and Dalton Ross. Edited by Lauren Klein. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>